You're Missing Out is sponsored by Audible. As part of my New Year's resolution, I told myself I'd read more and listen to new audiobooks. With Audible, it's easier than ever to find titles and time in my routine to reach my goal. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Right now, you can visit audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast and get two audiobooks on behalf of the show. You can download thousands of different titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. Download the free Audible app on your favorite smartphone and tablet devices without ever losing your spot. Having a hard time deciding what to listen to? No worries. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. This is the best way to find a new title to fall in love with, all while supporting your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast to start your free trial and get two free audiobooks on us. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, I want to know a massive phenomenon from your youth that you're going to have to explain to your grandkids because it's going to be completely forgotten by the time they're alive. So I was thinking about this, and mine's a bit of an anecdote in terms of... um, I actually was so convinced this thing was going to be such a huge deal that it it motivated an action of mine, which is... uh, I was in a band in high school and college, and at a certain point, I got this idea in my head... I convinced two other members of my band, and I said, all of us are going to go out to East Rutherford, New Jersey, where they were ho- uh, where they were holding auditions for the television program American Idol. Uh, and the reason we did this was not that any of us had ambitions of getting on the show, per se, but it was more the fact that at that point, I think the show was like seven or eight years old and and american idol was the biggest phenomenon when it came out like it's impossible to overstate how massive that thing was like even if you didn't watch it america everyone knew who simon cowell was everybody hung on what's going to happen kelly clarkson or justin guarini and i thought this thing was gonna be such a phenomenon uh forever it was gonna be such a cultural touchstone that i wanted to be able to uh, and we all were like, oh, someday we'll be able to tell our kids, like, we actually went and tried out for that show. Because, of course, it'll still be talked about then. And, like, now it's it, it went off the air. It's back on the air. I don't know if anybody can name anybody who has won American Idol in the last decade and a half. Um, and there's no way in hell, unless they somehow revive one of those I Love the 80s type shows for the 2000s. And maybe the kids or grandkids are watching it and go, what the hell was that show? Then I could maybe go, I tried out for that. Um, Yeah, American Idol. The entire, like, singing show craze that came with it. But American Idol is one of those things that I truly thought was going to be remembered forever. And now we'll definitely have to explain to my grandkids. Okay, so we're not kind of too far off from what we're talking about because uh, TRL. Ooh. Yeah. What the fuck was that all about? <laughs> like, like legitimately, like you sit back with hindsight and you go, okay, like I get it. It's a TV show where they like, you know, they vote on the music videos and they like show them in the hour and blah, blah, blah. But like the fucking grip that that show had on the youth of America to the point that these absolute fucking imbeciles would swarm Times Square to just stand outside the building and scream and thus, in fact, miss the show, (laughs) which is watching music videos 
What? No. Enough. <laughs> stupid. Stupid. I'm glad the music industry died. It's very stupid. What the hell? Christ, that was an insane time. Okay, but TRL did give us one good thing, which is that, like, six-week or eight-week streak where Tom Green got lonely Swedish on the countdown. And then, do you remember this when this happened? No. No, my talk. Tom Green made a, a, a terrible song, uh, an intentionally terrible song called Lonely Swedish that Eminem parodies. Um, you know that, my bum is on the man, or, you know, my bum is on your lips, my bum is in your lips, and, and maybe if lucky, you might just give it a little kiss. That's a reference to Tom Green's Lonely Swedish, which was just about him putting his ass on things. Um, and he convinced his fans to keep voting for it on TRL, so it had to keep getting played. But then TRL was about to do their spring break, and that was pre-taped like months ago, meaning they basically told Tom Green, if you keep this shit up, it's going to expose that this thing is pre-taped and people will be furious. So he had to, like, back down from the bit. <laughs> but for six glorious weeks, he got his dumb, his dumb bullshit on TRL, and Carson Daly had to die inside every time he played it. So there's that. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> also music videos, we'll have to explain too. <laughs> Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week when you're missing out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, Clay Keller from the Screen Drafts Podcast joins us for 1925's The Freshman. Our guest today is the host of the podcast Screen Drafts, a favorite podcast of Tom and I's. Clay Keller is here to join us. Clay, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, thank you uh, so much for having me on, Mike. I mean, you said it's a, that Screen Drafts is a favorite podcast of yours and Tom's. Noticeably absent in that list of people who are fans of Screen Drafts is the other person here on this recording. I have to is is Kyle notably notably not a fan of Screen Drafts? Oh, Kyle well, doesn't we, get to we, talk we, on we... the main part of the episode. Just oh, to be clear. Yeah, Kyle gets off to a corner. And, and, uh, and admittedly, I mean, I guess I guess you've 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 out you've outed me here. But admittedly, I guess <laughs> I'm the type of person that like. I'm not the type of person to wear a band shirt of a band I don't listen to. You know what I mean? So oh, respect, I don't wanna... absolutely. <laughs> also, to be fair, we have an age limit for Kyle. He's a little baby. Uh, there's yeah, an age true. limit for That's... when we can uh, expose someone to Billy Ray. Yeah. Yeah. So... yeah. <laughs> yeah Once he can Ray start really growing is, hair a... on his cheeks, he can listen he's... to Billy Ray. Jesus. Billy Ray is definitely a uh, TV 14 at 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 least. Yeah, absolutely. We we got to ease him in. Maybe get him into like a few Cogman episodes to be like, okay, you're like, you're, you're watching like, this is like Fright Night or like, you know, the Goonies, you know, your kitty trauma kind of stuff. Then, then we'll throw him into like, you know, the Burbs or the, I don't know, I guess Texas Chainsaw 2. That's uh, Billy Ray. <laughs> that 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 makes a lot of sense look i i look i appreciate i what, what I, I like is a challenge i don't want everybody to to be a fan you know right <laughs> off the bat to be you know kissing my ass or whatever i'm i'm gonna win kyle as as <laughs> as a fan of of screen drafts i'm well, excited i'm looking forward to it and for you know we'll talk more about screen drafts at the end too but for folks who who you know uh don't know screen drafts uh, if you like our show, you'll definitely enjoy theirs. In fact, uh, plenty of past and future guests of our show have been guest uh, GMs on Screen Drafts. Patrick Kotner has been on, uh, Phyllis Gove, Kenny Nybart, 
um, you know, a number of folks who have been on. And now we get to have you on our show. And I believe what we're doing, if I got my notes right, is we all watched all of Harold Lloyd's films. And this will be a serpentine style draft of our of the top. <laughs> right. Is no, Yeah, is that for yeah. sure. Look, de- definitely uh, the one where he hangs from the clock. <laughs> gotta be that's more like a five i think you know it's like <laughs> easing into the uh established classics not not like a wild card per se but um uh yes i did <laughs> i did watch watch all of them yeah, to prepare it, it blows my mind what people do to prepare for my show i i i only guest on shows with the like minute like i will watch one movie <laughs> to be a guest on a show <laughs> See, that's, uh, yeah. I, my kind of guy. <laughs> that's the difference between, you know, like, because Tom is, is that way. Me, uh, if anybody's heard me on podcasts like it's 1999 with our friends Phil and Kenny, I, I go too far in research. Uh, we did an episode on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the original movie, and I proceeded to watch not only every film, but every episode of the television show. That We all remember, right? Unbelievable. The, the, the four season long uh, Disney Channel show. Um, but I sent you the list of films. And I'm also so grateful you came by because this was a case where I asked you back when we thought we were starting season two, and you said, absolutely, let's do it. And then uh, we sort of fell off because I had uh, a bunch of stuff happen in my life, and we reached out, and you were still grateful enough to come, uh, gracious enough to come on. We're grateful for it. And you selected The Freshman, uh, Harold Lloyd's 1925 film. Had you seen The Freshman before, or was this a fresh watch for you? Uh, I had not seen it, I, but I was familiar with its runtime. Uh, which really made it smart so it definitely stood out um yeah no i i had seen so i had already seen i you know most of the time when i uh, do a guest spot on a podcast or something and i have an option for things to choose from i like to try and use those as opportunities sometimes people ask me on for a specific thing to talk about you know, some movie that I won't shut up about on Twitter, like U.S. Marshals or Broadcast News or something. And then and then it's it's a rewatch. But I usually like to use this opportunity to expose myself to something that I have not seen before. So, yeah, the list you sent me, it had maybe six or seven titles on and I'd seen a handful of them. Uh, and I think initially we were talking about doing Woman Under the Influence. And then, as you said, there ended up being a six or seven, eight month kind of interim in between when we had initially started. And so I totally forgot that we had dis- and then it ended up coming up on our show. Uh, and I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to, to, to watch and speak about a, a woman under the influence twice in as many months. I just, uh, am not built of strong enough emotional stuff for that. But the freshman, um, stood out because, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you guys because it was the shortest, but also it is one that I've had on my list forever. Uh, and I thought this would be a great opportunity to, uh, make myself watch it. Uh, I love Chaplin. And Keaton and Lloyd, but really Ch- Chaplin's the only one whose filmography I have seen a significant chunk of. So any chance I get to uh, make myself um, dig deeper into the filmographies of uh, of of those guys, I I leap at the chance. Uh, by the way, just so you know, uh, you, you may have goofed up a little bit because I know that on that list was also uh, Pare Lorenz's The River, which is like 25 minutes long. So Oh, You damn. put so much more work on yourself than you damn. have. Damn. Yeah. Really? Uh, oh, no. Yeah, trust. Listen, as this show goes on into future seasons, we have some that are like five seconds long, so it's going to be fun. 
we get we get color bars at one point. So uh-huh. you know, are you are are you are you gonna we, like? We got the Sabruta film. Oh, the Sabruta. Sub- it's oh, in there. Wow, it. They're all in. Yeah, that's in there. Are you gonna pair those shorter ones uh, t- together? Or do them as a batch. Are you gonna make a- are- every single one its own episode? This is the goal for us. Is that the idea? Is uh, it's half like. You know, we, we always state that the goal of the show is to, to help people understand why these films are important, why these films are in the registry. And that also means there's an extra challenge on us when we get to something like Color Bars or New York, uh, Newark Athlete or, or the story of menstruation or something where we kind of have to go, what is this episode going to be? What's right. Let's All Go to the Lobby going to be? It's going to be a hoot. That's what it's going to be. Oh, let's all go to the lobby. I I bet there's a fun history of that to be to be dug into. I assume for the uh, history of menstruation, you're going to have like three white guys as the panel, right? Bingo. Yeah, that's. Oh yeah, like- this is where we let Kyle finally talk on the episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to be you guys. Yeah. Realistically, it was made at Disney in the '50s. It was a bunch of white guys making the cartoon anyway, <laughs> so you know it balances out. But so. Uh, you came on for the freshman. I'm very excited to talk about this film. Uh, I did a lot of uh, Harold Lloyd digging in the last couple days. Fascinating guy, fascinating career, and this film is such an interesting portrait of its time. But before we get into all that, let's talk about why the registry picked it. Here is what the National Film Registry had to say about the freshman. The collegiate fad that swept the U.S. during the 1920s testified to popular culture's utter fascination with youth, and Hollywood shrewdly jumped on the bandwagon. The formula was deployed with such regularity that comic Harold Lloyd satirized it to great effect in his enormously popular film, The Freshman. Lloyd plays the naive collegian who enthusiastically determines to be big man on campus by copying the manners of movie collegians. After donning his Letterman sweater, perfecting his college yell, and rehearsing the ridiculous jig that he hopes will be his ticket to popularity, he begins his journey to college. Lamb's arrival at Tate University, billed as a large football stadium with a college attached, begins a series of comical trials and tribulations that tests his mettle. In addition to providing the perfect showcase for Lloyd's ingenious gags, physical humor, and tender pathos, the freshman proved to be one of the most successful films of his career. So that is what the National Film Registry had to say. Um, I do want to start by saying I think the thing that's most interesting about this, and I say this with all the love for the freshmen and, and, and all of that, is that when we looked at year one uh, of the film inductees, they were all, I would say, and Tom, you disagree, but I feel like everyone was like the quintessential film of this person, right? Like the most stereotypical, like, go-to. I mean, pretty much, yeah. I'm a little surprised that the freshmen was selected before safety last because clay even mentioned at the beginning the the harold lloyd hanging off the clock that famous image is from safety last i was i'm i'm a bit surprised that this film got in before that well uh i'm also just a little annoyed that it wasn't inducted in the first year of the film registry because uh it would then be in the freshman class of pictures this so, is very <laughs> true this would have been you know but yeah that's actually a good point i didn't really think of that mainly because uh the last week and a half has been a nightmare of me catching the flu and strep at the same time so i'm running on fumes um but yeah yeah that's weird um i don't know i guess i don't know i mean 90s is when football really starts exploding at this point tv's really turning football into like a bigger thing and it's starting to outgrow 
baseball at this point. And you're starting to see that with basketball also, but football's starting to explode with like halftime shows. Maybe it's got something to do with that. The film registry folks were like looking at the the way football started to explode, which kind of, you know, starts here, really, you know, all those moons ago. In the... Yeah. Well, and perhaps you can uh, educate me more on what Harold Lloyd's uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, a shtick was or his persona mm-hmm. as compared to Chaplin or Keaton. But Safety Lass is, is full of these, uh, you know, special effects, death-defying stunt kind of things. This one uh, isn't, does it, it doesn't really have that many of those. It's a lot smaller. It's a lot more just kind of like um, visual comedic gags, the sort of sleight of hand and the little playful, balletically designed things like that scene at the, at the, at the dance was, is that more indicative of what Harold Lloyd's, uh, you know, um, persona and his films, his style of comedy was, and maybe safety last is a bit more of an outlier. I really don't know much about Harold Lloyd outside of the fact that he had those horn room glasses and he was, did a, you know, kind of similar type of physical based comedy to Keaton and Chaplin. Um, but I, th- besides that, like I said, this is the only film of his that I've, I've ever seen. So Lloyd is, is super interesting, um, you know, to, to dig into, uh, I mean, there's a documentary about him called The Third Genius because he is kind of the third major figure uh, of silent comedy. If uh, I said this to Tom the other day in a joke, but really, like, you know, for any uh, wrestling fans out there, you know, AEW talks about their four pillars. If you have the four pillars of early silent comedy, it's Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Fatty Arbuckle. Like, those are just the titans, and they all have their rises and falls at different times, but they're all coming up around the same time. Lloyd is interesting because of the three that really survived, because, of course, Fatty Arbuckle, um, his career took a a nosedive for reasons we'll have to get into in a future season when we talk about his movie. But with Lloyd, the interesting thing is that where Chaplin and Keaton are much more, their personas that they craft are much more... um, I don't want to say abstract, but they're they're more low status than their audience. You know, that, that Keaton is always put upon the most blue-collar guy, and Chaplin is obviously playing the little hobo, the, you know, the little tramp. With Lloyd, he was playing a character that was much more akin to his audience, right? Lloyd is playing, his character is a stereo, is a, a you know, a lampooning of, the 1920s character of the young go-getter, right? Mike D'Angelo said of it, uh, for all his popularity, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton weren't figures with whom the average American could identify in the sense of thinking, that's me up there. Harold Lloyd was the silent comic who fulfilled that need. The typical Lloyd hero is a perpetually bumbling go-getter who wants nothing more than to be liked and who seems like enough of a normal guy, despite the proto-geeky horn rim glasses, to pull that off after some requisite struggles. So the whole thing about Lloyd and what he does is he is, uh, you know, he has his series of what are called thrill pictures, um, which are all, he was always a stunt guy. He was always a physical comedian, but we talk about hanging on the clock and all of that comes out of Hal Roach basically discovering they were filming up on a hill in, I want to say San Francisco uh, at some mansion. And he realized if they framed the shot right, uh, it could look like people were hanging in air. So they did a lot of stuff with that with Lloyd, ultimately concluding in this, uh, the, the clock hang is done. But even then, 
thinking of Lloyd as hanging from the clock as a physical stunt is not necessarily why that happens in terms of what really makes Lloyd stand out is that he is satirizing the times. The reason he's hanging from the clock in safety last is because he works at a department store. He's trying to get people to show up. And at the time, you know, we know in like the 20s, there were all the flagpole sitters and human flies and all those, you know, daredevil stuntmen, right? In this, he commissioned somebody to be a human fly on his store building, but the guy, for whatever reason, can't do the climb, and Lloyd has to do it himself. That's why he's hanging from the, the clock. So in a way, the freshman is in line with his other work in terms of it is always about him keeping up with some kind of trend and being in physical danger. In this case, as much as the stunts may not be as big as hanging from a clock or, or anything like that, or even the, the big car chase and Speedy, which comes along later, in this, he is still in a lot of danger because it's worth noting Lloyd does all of his stunts in this movie, which means getting repeatedly tackled by actual USC football players. <laughs> so those were real, real football players then? Yes, yes. Okay. He was, Lloyd was a huge sports nut. He was a huge sports nut, huge athlete, loved football, loved you know squash, loved all these things, um, which is all the more impressive because I don't know if you guys know, um, after 1919, Harold Lloyd did not have two full hands. That is No, what? that is not a thing I knew. <laughs> yeah. So Harold Lloyd, uh, uh, you know, he's a big star. And in 1919, he's making a film called Haunted Spooks. Halfway through, they're doing publicity photos. And Lloyd decides to pick up what he believes is a prop bomb. Uh, sitting on a table, picks it up, and then decides he had a cigarette in his mouth, he would light the bomb with his cigarette, because wouldn't that look funny? Oh, no. And then the bomb goes off, and by Lloyd's own accounting, launches him up into the air. He hits the ground, and it blew off his right index finger and thumb. And he was concerned that he'd never be able to act again. And what happened was they engineered, I think Hal Roach did it, I could be wrong on who did it, Somebody engineered a glove that had fake fingers inside of fake finger and fake thumb that he would wear on his right hand. And because the middle and index finger were attached, if he closed his hand, it would look correct. So if you go back and watch any of these movies now, you didn't notice them in the 20s, but Criterion has done restorations of four of Lloyd's films in 4K. Or well, not 4K. Well, they did a 4K restoration, but it's not the 4K discs. In any event... Uh, safety last kid brother freshman or speedy if you go back and watch them now in this high definition you can definitely see the lack of definition on his right hand which is the glove oh interesting and yet he still That's... does all of the football and everything i uh, i mean good for him man i mean uh i mean it's not like he's doing anything that he needs that right hand much he's kind of <laughs> just kind of getting molly at the end instead of doing anything all too athletic but yeah jesus christ that's yeah. nuts the lengths <laughs> that those guys would go to i mean and, and i i i wonder if it was i mean obviously putting people of you know certainly stars but anybody on a film set being put in that kind of of danger you know we've had lots of you know a, a very recent example of this uh sarah jones like these things like not only is it illegal now but i feel like people just have so much is it that people have more self-worth now or like what 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 is it that about the early days of film that drove uh, people to just constantly put their own lives in peril 
for the sake of making a movie that that always astounds me when i hear stories like and why was there a bomb on the press tour i i have a lot of questions yeah yeah i think i I have a lot of questions about this anecdote yeah Yeah. i think that's what we robert graysmith stop looking for the zodiac we need to figure out why was there a bomb next to harold lloyd on the press tour that's a bit uh to to promote a short film yeah yeah so what the hell is that he i mean the the big thing about it too is is that lloyd is one of these guys because that's the other thing that we kind of forget about the early days of film is how much of this was just making up the rules as they went along right Right. i mean the the big thing the fascinating thing is um i don't know if you guys are familiar with hal roach the name does that sound familiar Uh, i i know about hal roach but yeah i've not done um you know any any research hal roach is one of the major names in early comedy Besides, um, oh my god, now I just forgot the name. Uh, so basically, Harold Lloyd and Hal Roach met because they came up together doing extras work in all of the uh, in movies for, I think they did a couple for Universal, but the main thing is they do movies for Keystone, mm. um, which we now know is uh, Keystone Cops is probably the name that everybody takes away from it. Max Sennett. Yeah. Max Sennett is the producer of that. And Keystone is the early... Uh, break for Buster Keaton and Fatty Arbuckle because Buster Keaton is paired up with Fatty Arbuckle in a lot of his early shorts. Uh, Chaplin does a couple of Keystone films. In fact, Harold Lloyd has a bit part in an early Chaplin short called The Submarine Pirate. You can spot Lloyd for like five seconds. Lloyd and Roach come up together and are working on these films. Uh, Love, Loot, and Crash, things like that. Roach gets the opportunity to start his own studio and Lloyd becomes the first guy that he hires. Uh, And when they're working together, the first character that Lloyd develops is actually a, a, I'm going to put air quotes around this original character named Lonesome Luke. Uh, Debuts in the short, just nuts. Lonesome Luke is just a Chaplin ripoff. Um, Except he wears loose clothes instead of tight clothes or tight clothes instead of loose clothes. And instead of having the mustache in the middle, he only has the sides. It It's not a particularly good character. Um, in doing wow. that, he starts working with two people, his co-star Snub Pollard, and his original romantic interest, who is a comedian great on her own, B.B. Uh, Daniels. Um, and B.B. Daniels is the first of his three key romantic leads, the interesting thing about BB is they were actually here's a sad story. Um, they were engaged to be married. He loved her uh, so much, but her mother didn't want her to marry him because she thought he'll never make anything of himself. So when she broke off, when BB broke off the engagement, she took the ring, took the diamonds out of the ring, and had them made into cufflinks for Lloyd. And he wore those in every film he made after that. Aww. Um, oh, he was softy. He would end up marrying his second co-star. And the first film he would make after that marriage with his third co-star uh, is The Freshman, which uh, is where Jabina comes in. In any event, all of that to say, Lloyd was working with Harold Ro- uh, Hal Roach, and they were kind of just doing whatever could get a laugh. Roach was one of the pioneering uh, you know, comedic directors, and that meant that sometimes your comedies were little satirical things and sometimes they were just big stunt things it's important to remember i think for our listeners out there that early silent comedy was not i mean you had no dialogue lloyd's films i think are very good about having good puns on their title cards but um 
besides that, they're mostly stunts. And as a result, they're a, a weird mix of more satirical comedies we have now and like jackass in a way. <laughs> you kind of did show up to watch these guys literally put themselves in harm's way. So that, sorry, it's a long roundabout, Clay, to to answer your, your comment about why these things were so dangerous. Is that was Oh, this is, no, this is all uh, fascinating. I'm, you, we, we, we're not on video, but I'm I'm sitting with, with my my chin perched on my two fists, just like wide eye. I'm just, I'm, I'm absorbing all of this. I'm, this is great. <laughs> He's, I mean, it's truly like, Lloyd is a fascinating guy, uh, especially because the, the most interesting thing about it is is that you you know people might wonder people listening to this like well if he was as big as Chaplin as big as Keaton which he was actually much bigger he was more profitable than them uh, throughout the twenties um, why wasn't he a big deal now why don't we remember him now uh, the interesting thing about Lloyd is after he leaves the picture business in the thirties um, except for one stray film in the forties which we'll get into when he leaves the picture business he was very very particular about re releases. He wouldn't grant uh, cinematic re-releases to most theaters because they would not have an organist to play for his films. And he didn't mm. want them accompanied by piano or canned music. He demanded an organist. He also would demand, uh, he would never let them be on TV because he demanded $300,000 per picture for two showings. And quote, he says, that's a high price, but if I don't get it, I'm not going to show it. They've come close, but they haven't come all the way. As a result, because he kept the copyright for most of his films and wouldn't let them be re-released, whereas Keaton's films fall into the public domain very quickly, a lot of Chaplin's films do too, those films get seen a hell of a lot more. And yeah. that ultimately means that now, instead of us having an idea of Chaplin, Lloyd, Keaton, we now just have Chaplin and Keaton. To say nothing of the fact that Obviously, Lloyd's films are much more rooted in the 1920s as opposed to yeah. Time I was gonna of... right. I was gonna kind of make that point. I think uh, I think the Chaplin and Keaton stuff are a little more uh, a broader in their appeal, not too much rooted in uh, you know the collegiate craze of the 20s, which well, I didn't know was a thing. Except, except your boy Buster Keaton in 1927 makes a film called College. Which is hey, him trying to capitalize on the massive success that was the freshman. Well, listen, I'm not. I'm listen. This, I'm not saying anything about the uh, uh, originality or the lack of uh, business scruples of some <laughs> of these guys back in the day. I'm just saying, for the most part, you don't need to have a PhD in the Civil War to watch the General. Yeah, you know, you don't need to know about uh, the the ins and outs of being poor to watch the kid. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I didn't get. A lot of the stuff that the this was satirizing, and I, I and uh, I don't think many people that watch significantly less movies than me will get will get it too if they ever come across it. So I think there's maybe a, which again could probably go back to your the original point of they didn't play it a lot, so people just don't know anything about it. But well, uh, I also yeah. I also think there's something to Lloyd's character in this film that I think is the comedy in this movie. I think is. And let me qualify this is is a bit more modern than in other films because in a sense, whereas with Chaplin's films, you know, the tramp often gets the upper hand, right? Oh yeah, that's kind of the gag of it. And for Buster Keaton, you feel, I mean, you feel bad for him, right? He's he's always a mope. He's always got things, you know, going rough for him. Um, but you know, he comes out on top sometimes. 
The thing about Lloyd's character, especially in this movie, is it's what we now maybe call today like cringe comedy. It's the comedy of embarrassment, right? Which is the main yeah. thing we do now. Um, you know, it's it's the main kind of humor that that office style, you know, guy embarrassing. I mean, the uh, the whole idea of you know, you mentioned the collegiate craze, Tom, and like that was a big thing. I mean, there's there's so many I mean, that's the that's the game of this movie at the start is obviously, you know, he wants to go to college and it was difficult to go to college then, right? Everybody was the thing that was so aspirational. But the the game of it is that he wants to go to college. He's he's saved up to go to college, right? Um yeah. which by the way, he saved up a total of four hundred and eighty five dollars by selling washing machines. Anybody want to guess how much that is in today's money? I God, I have no. And uh, what kind of washing machine? He's selling the like washboards or like some kind of a hand crank. I would washing imagine machine a hand crank what? washing machine. Yeah, at that point, uh, four hundred. So what? That's twenty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars, seven thousand seven hundred and twenty six dollars and eighty cents. That's Ooh. all it cost for him to That's attend State University. Yeah, and he's a um, big spender. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spent uh, seven grand on some ice cream. <laughs> I wanted to see story. him. I was not satisfied just getting the little, like, newspaper clipping that says, like, you know, frisky freshman purchasing his <laughs> way to popularity by buying everyone ice cream. I wanted a scene with him overwhelmed with an armful of, like, 75 ice cream cones <laughs> trying to pass them out to everybody who walks by. I was, I, I, I feel like I was, I was, uh, 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 not given a scene that was really integral to the oh, story. We, 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 we were teased. We, you, you don't say frisky freshman. I need to know why frisky in particular. <laughs> what was he doing was with that ice cream? Ago. It means a century ago. It means something else then. I still want to know. I still want to so, know what he was doing with that ice cream. Yeah, I will I say w- And I want, yeah. how come the Tatler r- r- writer who is uh, chronicling the the adventures of, of Harold's speedy lamb, how come they're not a character? I, I want to see the cub reporter on the ground I will, who is following him around all the time. Who just sees this little freak doing a dance the second he gets off a train <laughs> and, goes, and goes, this guy, this guy's my way to the top. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this. All of that was probably shot. And the reason I say that is Harold Lloyd was a huge believer in previews and test audiences. So while other filmmakers of the time and other artists of the time really didn't rely on test audiences that much, they would just shoot the film and go, whatever. Lloyd would shoot countless reels of footage of gags and all that, play it for a crowd and then as like a test audience, and then he would just cut based on what didn't work for them. So most of the time... For his the first this is this is uh, an interesting thing. The only reason Harold Lloyd started making feature films was an accident. He used to shoot like four reels of footage for each movie, and then he would present it to a preview audience. He would hear which gags landed and which ones didn't, and then he would cut based on that. But for the film A Sailor Made Man, he shot four reels of footage, and all four reels got such laughs that he didn't want to cut anything and accidentally made a feature. <laughs> so this sounds like Jackass 1.5. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, uh, all right, here we go. <laughs> that's how we get you on board. But the interesting thing about that is he may have shot all this stuff. The thing about this film is it's the only time that he shot it. Normally what he used to do is he would come up with the gags ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. He would come up this, with the yeah. big climax scenes, shoot those, and then make up a story around it in a way. In this one... Uh, he started shooting the football scene. I believe they filmed at the Rose Bowl. 
And then he felt like the scene wasn't working because he didn't understand the character. And he really wanted to make this more character-based than his previous stuff where the character is just a go-getter. He really wanted to build up that empathy so that when he wins the game and when he succeeds, you're really rooting for him. Uh, so instead, they shot the entire film sequentially. So he usually shoots like McQuarrie, but uh, this time he decided to shoot uh, in order. Yep. Yep. He shoots right. it sequentially. Um, Interesting. I mean, I don't I don't want to say I, you could tell that from watching the movie, but you can kind of tell that this is being made in a different way than like these guys at the time would make these movies. Yeah. Because like Clay pointed out, there's it doesn't... Ha- this isn't it doesn't really feel like stunt comedy. This is more like pratfall comedy where it doesn't really feel like he's doing something that Chaplin and Keaton would do. This feels like a different thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, he's going for a character thing and he's shooting it sequentially, so he's not thinking of gags first. So everything feels more natural within the story he's telling instead of like all right, well, we got to climb up this uh, this fucking clock tower. What uh, what do we do around it? And it goes, okay, here's the big, yeah. the big set piece where this is all kind of right. like, uh, you know, and uh, uh, it, it's building, and it doesn't build to an explosion of something crazy, but it builds to you know, pretty sizable football game. And it's it's also, I mean, like safety last, and you watch some of his other films uh, prior to this, right? Um, but particularly safety last features that that building climb. But when you're watching the building climb, all you're feeling is you're laughing at how silly it is. And there's a lot of suspense to it. Don't get me wrong. There is real suspense, but it's just about the stunt. Whereas the thing that makes The Freshman impressive is that it could have been just a sequence of football gags, right? I mean, this is considered by a lot of scholars to be the first ever sports comedy. And it could have just been a sports comedy. But you're really rooting for him to win. You're you're invested in seeing Harold Lamb win the game and be accepted. And I think that's because he carefully structured this series of embarrassments to lead up to a point that is kind of his thesis in a way. In the, in the way that Chaplin's films all revolve around this idea of collective humanity. You know, it doesn't matter if it's modern times or the great dictator or the kid. They're They're all it to this theme of of pretty much the speech he makes at the end of great dictator right is kind of this theme he's going to um lloyd's big theme was always about being yourself that that's a theme that he goes back to a lot about being true to yourself um in one of his earlier films grandma's boy uh he does it's a western that he does um because lloyd weirdly for being so 20s did do a couple of comedy westerns i think in part because he just looks a lot like William S. Hart, who was kind of the John Wayne of his day. Um, but Lloyd's point is always about being true to yourself, and that's what Jobina's character tells him, uh, you know, toward the end of the film, is like, well, you're trying to be somebody you're not, you're trying to impress these people, just be yourself, and ultimately he succeeds, um, which I think, it it makes it very touching when he when he wins at the end, you know? You're happy for him, and apparently um, well into the, the 50s and 60s, on the times Lloyd would screen this film for younger audiences, they would cheer for him at the end, which I think is very sweet. Well, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's it's a rousing scene, and as Americans, yeah, we do have this sort of inherent, ingrained uh, need to cheer for the underdog and to uh, you know see the, the 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 hero who's been struggling so much, you know, achieve a 
achieve success. It is, yeah, it is. There, there is something inherently, especially in this movie, with that's all about going to going to college. Uh, something inherently American, and I suppose about him as a striver too. There's always something felt, and of course, he was European. There's something that's very European about Chaplin and his movies. Uh, yeah. To, to to me and and keaton has this very unique kind of deadpan sadness that 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 lloyd is it's no surprise to me that he is sort of the equalized middle of the road crowd pleaser of these guys uh because he is and he is to some extent in this playing playing a young person playing something of a of a little cutie like i bet he was more popular with the teens uh than chaplin or keaton were um and, and I like your point, yeah, about that. That this these scenes were born out of. It was not a movie where they had gags, like you know uh, John Woo sometimes does, where they come up with the stunts and then they build the movie around it afterwards. I believe that's how they made uh, Mission Impossible Two. Is John Woo sent Robert Town a list of stunts he wanted to do, uh, and then they wrote the movie backwards. But another uh, movie that involves someone precariously dangling at one point so it all comes together yeah exactly um <laughs> yeah. and a lot of yeah comedic sleight of hand yeah but yeah it is it is it takes this this structure of going to college which i think uh, obviously I, i'm like i'm like you tom with the outdated re- references and things i watched this movie and a lot of stuff i was like oh i i assume that must be a reference to something or or i'm guess <laughs> yeah. i guess that's a good joke i i'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt that this is very very funny uh given given the context like that gag at the beginning the gag at the beginning with the dad and the radio oh yes 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 the title card says you know the the <laughs> that the father was a bad radio liar which i still don't know what that means but the gag is built around him thinking he something harold is like yelling fight songs up in a different part of the house and the dad thinks he like has china on his radio mm-hmm. yeah i i feel like that was a fucking like killer gag in the first 10 years of radios uh it's but... it's you have to imagine like it's a bit the 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 joke is on something that's maybe a bit earlier like this movie is because this movie is lampooning the collegiate craze was a thing in like the early 20s and late tens um there were a huge amount of particularly books but also films and comic strips that were just about young boy goes to college and right. his adventures at college He's the star of the football team. He avoids temptation like alcohol and things like that, right? Um, the Harold Teen comic strips were that. Um, if anybody is familiar with the Rover Boys, the Rover Boys were a very popular series of books at the end of the 1800s, and they were just about uh, the Rover Boys. They go to school. They like these girls. There's a bad guy. Like, that's it. Right. Um, these those books do evolve into what we now know of more as like the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew type things. They become mystery novels as the collegiate craze dies out. But originally, it's just right. college stuff. So this is lampooning all that. And in that time, guys would you know uh, it was it was kind of like the CB radio craze in the seventies. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody had to oh, they were a mighty convoy yeah. where right. guys would get these uh, these headsets and these controls. And they would try to pick up radio signals that they weren't supposed to get. You know what I mean? Like that was a real yeah. kick. Was like, oh, honey, I I got the the radio signal from the next town over. You you won't believe what they're saying. Even though, like, who cares? Um, and some guys would be convinced that they could hear uh, as far away as China. So that's a lampoon on that, but also that. Um, 
Harold is doing all of his football cheers because that's the the big gag at the, at the beginning is just the idea of here he is he's getting to go to college which most people don't get to do and he is carefully 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 studying but nothing academic he's doing all of this studying <laughs> right. and it's all the football cheers and then he's reading all the books now it should be noted that the movie that he models himself after the oh, now i'm forgetting the the title of the film um, it's something the something hero is it the college the hero college hero like so the yeah. yeah the college hero starring laurel lester uh, lester laurel sorry the college hero starring lester laurel it wasn't real it was, you know, it was a fake movie. However, in 1927, somebody actually made a movie with that title just to capitalize on the success. Um, <laughs> and the books he's looking at, so there's Cleve College Clothes, Clever College Clothes, How to Play Football, and the other one, because I tried to hunt these down, uh, Jack Merivale at College. None of these are real. However, if you were alive back then and knew these gags, uh, Jack Merivale Goes to College is based on a series of books that were called Frank Merriwell that were a series of very popular books. Because remember, this is also around the time of those Horatio Alger novels of, like, making a life and, you know, uh, the kid starts in the mailroom and becomes the president of the company. Um, Frank Merriwell is apparently, according to the Criterion essay, <laughs> I haven't read any Frank Merriwell. Uh, apparently, they're very bad. And they're just like, Frank Merriwell goes to college. He's the captain of the football team. He dates the prettiest girl. He passes all the tests. That was a series of books. A full series. Uh, so, so in case you were wondering what Mike, this... you have, Mike, you have this, like, uh, uh, absurd wealth of knowledge about all this stuff and, and understanding the references and all these guys. When you're watching The Freshman, was, was this like, the, is this the funniest movie you've ever seen? I love this movie, <laughs> but it's also because I'm just it was the first time I saw it I didn't really dig it. And that, but I am the type of person uh, and Tom can test this that I I do a stupid amount of research for for pretty much everything we do, right? He is um, a homework freak. Yeah. Because one thing I love um because I'm also a big um I'm a huge uh Disney fan and the reason I'm a big Disney fan is because I love looking at all of those cartoons from the 20s all the way to like the 60s. And you just watch American culture evolve. Right. And you watch like all these things that, that mattered once and didn't, you know, now. I mean, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon ever produced, not released, but produced, was Plain Crazy. That's just like, boy, howdy, everyone loves that Charles Lindbergh. Um, you know, and I, I love getting to kind of, to me, when I watch particularly a Harold Lloyd film, um, because they're so rooted in the times, it's the closest I can come to time travel in a way where I can kind of look and go, not just get a sense of like, oh, this is how people dressed, but like, this is what mattered to them. This is what was relevant and things that we've forgotten. Right. I mean, obviously we've forgotten Lloyd in a lot of ways, but even like there's a gag at the be or a, a, a title card gag that I thought of that really struck me, which is it describes the upper class bully as making Simon Legree look like the good Samaritan. Did anybody get a chuckle out of that when that came up? No, Grandpa. I gave it my my courtesy. <laughs> I assume this is funny. Chuckle. Simon Legree is the chief villain uh, in Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> so he's like the vile, evil, abusive slave owner in Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the reason I find something like that so interesting is like, right in 1925, Uncle Tom's Cabin is a a strong contender in people's minds for the great American novel. And now, who's reading it? 
Who knows what that is? But it was so big in that day that like so many shorts and cartoons refer to that book as like the quintessential American novel. So yeah, if you watch this in twenty five, Simon Legree looks like the Good Samaritan. That would be the that is the equivalent of if you watched a movie today and somebody went, he makes Darth Vader look like Mister Rogers. You know, it's like that level of reference, and I I love that because it kind of shows like our joke formats haven't changed. <laughs> We're doing the same bits. We're just plugging in different names, you know. Right. Yeah, and it's and it is it is. Uh, I should do that little D- Disney cartoons project you were talking about because it is fascinating. So even if you don't do the research and you just have to reverse engineer a little bit, it is fascinating to look at a time when going to college was so novel and exotic that you literally could just show people going to college and studying and, you know, uh, having a flirtation or something. And then that's the movie. And so much so that then you get the whole like satirical cycle as well. It's something that now, you know, going to college is, is still uh, a privilege uh, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, But uh, it is kind of, it's very rote. It's, it's not exotic or exciting or interesting anymore to make a college movie interesting. You have to make it Van Wilder and have it be absurd beyond all, all belief in a lot of ways. But yeah, this is this, uh, that's what I got more out of this than anything else was. I thought it was a fascinating historical object. And yeah, as you were saying, Mike, being able to kind of use it as this window to the past to see attitudes and sensibilities, uh, and things because I, I like Lloyd, uh, you know, I definitely do not find him as amusing, uh, or, or dramatically or narratively nourishing as Chaplin or, or Keaton. But I think, I think it seems like there's less ambition in those areas, at least in this movie, uh, you know, comparing to something like the general or city lights or something like that. But I, I did, I did appreciate that it, it, it was felt, uh, relatively grounded, compared to some of those contemporary films. I thought it was kind of charming that it was a sort of this low key college comedy about this kid who just keeps getting his ass kicked and the whole school apparently going in on this, this prank to convince him that he's popular. Um, uh, and the scene at the dance is so great. Oh. Uh, the, the, the love interest. Uh, how did you pronounce her name? That was driving me crazy. The jo- entire movie. Jobina. Ralston. Jobina. She's Ralston. very, she's got a great silent movie face. Yes. Great great presence uh uh i enjoyed her a lot lloyd not giving me not giving me as as much in the romantic bits but i i i like the guy i i enjoy watching the movie um but uh but yeah i definitely the thing i got out of it most was that sort of historical aspect well i'll say this to what you're saying about chaplin um because i'm a big chaplin fan this is this is the uh the conflict that uh burns forever in our podcast is I'm more Chaplin than Keaton, and Tom is more Keaton than Chaplin. So, you know, mm. and never Hell the yeah. twain shall meet. But one thing that's interesting that you say about Chaplin is it's worth noting that you mentioned City Lights. I love City Lights. I think City Lights might be the greatest romance ever filmed. Mm-hmm. But City Lights comes later. The key thing about Chaplin is that Chaplin was able to adapt to the sound era in his own way. I mean, we all know the story, like everybody talks about. Keaton couldn't keep up with sound, right? That he had that weird voice and he, you know, he, he fell off after the sound era um, or during the sound era. Chaplin soars in the sound era. I mean, I think all of the films, uh, aside from the kid, the Chaplin films that are considered his great masterworks, City Lights, Modern Times, Great Dictator, 
all come after the advent of sound and all come after the collapse of his comedic rivals, Lloyd and, and Keaton. Uh, so much so, we talked about this last season, but there's a gag in modern times uh, with a Mickey Mouse doll because Chaplin basically viewed it as now in the 30s, he's got to compete with the cartoon mouse instead of Keaton and Lloyd. The reason I bring that up is the fact that it sort of feels like when Chaplin and Keaton first pop, particularly Chaplin, Chaplin is moving the 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 medium of film comedy forward, right? He's doing things, and he's he's got this character that people are rooted in, uh, in in his tramp character that people hadn't been before. And then Chaplin kind of, I don't want to say stalls out, but stops being quite as innovative. And in the twenties. Lloyd is really the one moving things forward. He's doing camera tricks. He's doing a lot of things, and he is infusing a lot of heart. It's worth noting that in, in the same year as The Kid, Harold Lloyd re- releases Grandma's Boy. And both films were hailed at the time as bringing pathos and empathy uh, to the comedy and making it a sentimental comedy in a way. I think the interesting thing is that Lloyd is the one kind of pushing comedy forward because he has the blank check to do it. He's the biggest thing on the block. He's pushing comedy forward throughout the 20s. And then by 1927, when Speedy happens, he has Speedy, Chaplin has the circus, and that is the moment that Chaplin overtakes Lloyd. Because Lloyd could not... I don't think he's bad in his few sound pictures, but he was never satisfied with sound because he couldn't make movies the same way and so by 1937 he stops making movies with the exception of one which we're going to talk about in a bit is one of the weirdest things i've ever seen so i think your point about what what he does with chaplin it's important to remember that the things that chaplin does later and even keaton are built on these guys were all building off each other they were all doing shit at the same time and they were building off each other and then you've also got uh, the other Hal Roach stars like uh, Charlie Chase and Laurel and Hardy. And, of course, um, I think most notably, our gang, the Little Rascals, who I don't know if either of you guys noticed, the dog from the Little Rascals has a cameo in this movie. Uh, yes, it was actually I that that was that is the one thing I did some research on was the little dog <laughs> with the circle around his eye. Yeah, it's uh, 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 he this is actually pre predated his his work on the Our Gang mm-hmm. show. Uh, this was his, I believe, according to uh, Wikipedia, his first uh, his first screen appearance. What a debut! Good, what a good boy! <laughs> what a good boy! And then there was a, a, a the, this dog's offspring was uh, actually acted for a longer time and had a and had a false ring put around its eye. The 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 the, the ring on this dog was a naturally occurring ring that was kind of spruced up with makeup, and then uh, his son got a permanent uh, ink eye uh, put put on by Max Factor, the uh, makeup artist, and then uh, assumed his father's duties as the little dog with the ring around his eye. Um, but, and, and you talked about the sentimentality of it too, Clay, and the romance. And that, that is something that I, I mean, again, City Lights, maybe the greatest film romance of all time. There are moments in this that I think get carried over. To, I mean, that moment, I, I love the reveal of Jobina the second time, you know, they meet on the train. They have that meet cute where they're each reciting. Uh, they're, they're trying to solve a crossword puzzle and the old woman thinks they're in love, mm, but yeah, then very cute. He checks into the, the house, the apartment he's cleaning the mirror. And when he cleans the mirror, it reveals her face. I just such a, it's, it's a, it's a very sweet moment. There's a lot of sweetness in this movie that is 
absent from a lot of silent comedies at the time. Yeah, there's a lot of sweetness. And he's he's a very sincere and guileless character in in this movie with just a lot of um innocent goals and desires uh <laughs> and he's beset uh on on all sides by evil yuppies uh so yeah it's it's you can't not root for him at the center of this and and she's so sweet and i <laughs> i like that at the end of the movie the jock that he's been looking up to the entire time uh, just like suddenly becomes like uh like uh, like an assaulter and just like attacks Jobina, but it, it's it is this this tradition that you know carries on through to Back to the Future and and and, and just and college guys being creeps. Yeah. yeah, um, guys be guys being creeps and uh and that being the motivator for the the aw shucks uh nice guy to to man up and then suck him one well i was i you know talking about these guys personalities and everything you know like chaplin's basically you know he's a little stinker he's bugs bunny keaton is uh what if eeyore was jackie chan um, keaton is droopy dog <laughs> well he's he's what if, what if droopy dog was in police story yeah um uh and you, yeah you got the sincerity of this guy but what i what i think is interesting is that this movie does kind of give you a little permission to like be I guess a little glad or like kind of take a little pleasure in him getting kind of oh, yeah. his one uppance because, well, one, he's being a real doof. I mean, uh, almost a hundred years later, we can see that things haven't changed. He's basically doing like, Oh, I just saw a drive. Let me get a scorpion jacket and I'll be the coolest. <laughs> right. I'll be a, I'll be the coolest guy at the bar for 18 year olds. Um, <laughs> so that, but you know, it's because the idea of college has changed so much. We don't really, we might not really get it, but like, he is still a character of privilege, so there is, like, this thing of right. you, this movie is punching up. So you kind of, like, oh, he's, like, a cute guy, he's, he, but he's being kind of an idiot. So, like, I'm glad he's getting the entire row of football players ta using him as a tackle dummy because he's kind of being a dope. Well, that's he's kind of being mean, a dope. You, we want to yeah. see him not be a dope anymore, which he, I think is, a you know, an interesting balance as compared to Chaplin and Keaton where they're so low status but like so guileless and wily that you're like the whole time you're like, yeah, let, let's just get the man, you know, where this, it's kind of like, yeah, he's dug himself a hole. I'm kind of glad right. he's getting it, but I want to see him dig himself out. Well, because you want to see him learn his lesson. Yeah. You don't want to see him like lose at the end, but you're kind of just like, all right, he deserves this. He's, he's that friend of yours. I'll bring it back to the friend of yours that bought the, the, the drive jacket and you go, okay, you gotta stop. People don't care that you saw a drive. Enough of this already. Just talk to them. He's also you. Like, he's also the audience insofar as, like, all of his embarrassing moments are just slight exaggerations of real things. Everything in this movie is a heightened version of some story that somebody could actually have. I mean, I love, you know, either in the romance side or the comedy side. I mean, on the romance side, you know, that, that moment... I, I, I wrote it down here, like, City Lights may be the greatest romance, but that's about a blind girl and this whole over-the-top thing. Whereas in this, like, you could buy that if somebody said, yeah, I met my college sweetheart on a train. It turns out we were living in the same building. She worked there, and I was so enamored with her that when she offered to repair my button, I cut all the buttons off of my coat just to keep her around. Like, that feels like a story somebody right. could tell. And in the same way, like, you know, it's the fact that He's so eager to please, right? Every accident that happens, every bad thing that befalls him 
is because he is so eager to try and... You mentioned he was privileged, Tom. I don't know if it's that so much as... Because he is a poor kid who, who saved up money to go to college. He doesn't have his parents' money or anything. I think it's more the idea of he is trying... Unlike Keaton or Chaplin, who, of course, so low status, like you pointed out, he is a regular middle-class guy in a way. I mean, you know, middle-class you have in 27. He, or, or in 25. But he is a regular guy. He is you or me. But he is trying to fit in with the cool and popular rich kids. So he's spending money he doesn't have. Um, he is getting a cheap suit that isn't finished in time. So it's literally falling apart. And he's so desperate to get on the football team that he is willingly letting himself get the shit kicked out of him. And even when he gets the shit kicked out of him, one of my favorite jokes in the movie, he does his little jig every time he meets somebody. And the moment when he's when he's beaten to hell and some guy walks up to introduce him to a girl and he just does the saddest lackluster jig. Just a great bit. Well, uh, uh, just, I mean, maybe I've misread the movie. I've watched it twice, but again, hey, maybe I misread it. I thought the washing machine stuff was all just carrying around money. That he, that wasn't him actually paying for himself to go to school. No, no, that's, yeah, he, he made money to go to college by selling washing machines. Well, because I, I, I think she says, he, look at how much money he saved to spend at school. I felt like that was just like carrying around money. I don't know. Either way. I, I took uh, that to be more of like, because again, his character is the 20s go-getter. And that's that very Horatio Alger idea that we still have in our culture now, a century later, even though it's been proven wrong. is like, well, listen, if you just go out there and get yourself a real job and hit the pavement, uh, you'll be a success. Which, well, well part of the reason the family doesn't seem too poor, you know, no, they that's, seem that's pretty fair, well but... off. Yeah, the yeah. dad's got a radio that can reach China. I think they're doing, <laughs> they're doing fine. I mean, there's inherent you know privilege there oh, just because yes, he's a sure. white guy and especially a hundred years ago uh but yeah I, I i like that i i i appreciated that as you were saying mike this was a more grounded more realistic n- narrative where city lights yeah is built the entire narrative is built on this it, it is sort of the the ultimate comedy based on a misunderstanding story that's ever been made but that's the brilliance of Chaplin is that he's able to take something that preposterous and bring it all the way back around and end in the kind of most beautiful sort of quiet moment. The audience totally buys it. This movie ha- ha- is has its share of comedic bits born out of a simple uh, misunderstanding. Uh, but I, but, but it, I, I do like that it is more grounded and feels as you guys are both saying more like something that could happen in real life or be a story that that your friend has than the the much higher stakes uh stuff of Chaplin and uh, Keaton. Yeah, I mean so much so to the point that even watching this I felt like even in the visuals um like not to say that the Chaplin or Keaton movies were aren't good looking at all but like there's a different visual style to them where the visuals are being built around the big moments so like the other moments are kind of a little less obviously well shot where this movie feels very much like i don't know because they're shooting it from beginning to end chronologically and it's not so focused on set pieces there's more of a visual beauty to it without calling too much attention to itself it felt very like like mike was saying that lloyd was pushing things at the time this felt like we could push the language of comedy without comedy being all about 
the stunts in a way, if you if you know what I mean. Yeah, because you could isolate if you just played the football game for someone, right? Yeah. The gags themselves still work. The idea of somebody releases balloons and it makes it so that you can't tell where the ball is landing or somebody grabs a hat and thinks it's the ball or he gets chalk on his face. Any of the individual gags, they still work as funny gags. But when you talked about Chaplin being kind of the Bugs Bunny, it is a bit of like, you know, it's, it's a cartoonish thing. But because he puts so much work into those previous scenes to really endear you to Harold Lamb, the football game has way more stakes to it. It can still be funny. It can still be, you know, very, very funny. But now you've got an extra investment in it because you yeah. want to see him win. Well, I'm, I'm also just meaning in terms of, like, the moment you brought up before where he cleans the the mirror and she's yeah. there, like just li- like, e- like moments that aren't even comedic bits. It's just yeah. even in the moments where it's setting up the next punchline or setting up the next, you know, gag that he's going to go through. Like it, it just felt like there was more yeah. of a focus on making every moment look good instead of like, well, we just got to get through this so we can get to the bit where he gets, you know, shot out yeah. of a cannon or whatever the yeah. fuck. And I, I don't know. I, I would never purport to be an, an expert on this era in, in film, but this is what 25, like for a movie from this era, there's, there's a, a lot of close-ups. The compositions are dynamic. The sets are interesting, you know, that with, with movies from this era, you know, that aren't by the masters, you can kind of get, they're a little bit, they're a little bit dusty. You got a lot of wide shots. You got a lot of, you know, and, and this um, felt very modern in its, and its compositions and its shot selections, in particular, yeah. the um, the nice medium close-ups that really kind of uh, uh, endear you to these characters and give you sort of more of an idea of what's going on with them than than uh, you otherwise might. Another thing worth noting too, and and I agree with you, Tom, exactly what you're saying about about how it works within even the the non-comedic scenes. Another thing I love about this film that I don't see a lot in comedies these times is that not only is it interested in having sincere emotional moments. But it has jokes within those scenes that don't undercut the emotion. Even today with comedies, I mean, Tom and I talk about this all the time. One of our biggest problems with like comedies today, or movies that have comedic moments, is when like the director is so focused on being funny and clever and quirky that he undercuts any emotion in the movie. You know, right. with this, one thing I think is great is like the moment when. We'll call it the Back to the Future moment, as you put it so well, Clay, about, you know, when when Jobina is being assaulted, when the non-college girl, the poor girl, if you will, you know, is is being taken advantage of by the college kid. And Harold, a.k.a. Speedy, recognizes, like, no, now's my chance to step in and defend her. Who cares about being popular? Who cares about all that? That's just that's that's a real emotional moment. And it's a great emotional moment where he finally strikes him down. And it is in no way undercut by the still funny gag of him taking off the jacket, but in pieces. Right. You know? And I think that that's so crucial because so many other comedies then and now would undercut the emotion by throwing in a gag, but he finds the exact way to calibrate the joke that you don't lose, that you don't get invested in the scene itself, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty deft comedy, uh, you know, screen, uh, writing as well as just the execution of it. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, well, it's yeah. a great it's a great, you know, capper to that entire 
15 minute sequence where he's yeah it's 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 a it's an excellent visual representation of what you're saying like where he's struggling so hard to not uh be made to look ridiculous and to be popular in the whole preceding sequence where he's being chased around by the 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 um, the tailor the tailor keeping the suit together all of these the hijinks trying booze let's never try, forget yes like, exactly it's his dizzy booze. spells uh but he he needs to you know keep this veneer pristine you know to 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 stay you know as you said to try and stay popular to not try try not look look like like an idiot and then this it builds to this moment where he finally rips it all off uh and and it's you know his sort of um sloughing off that perception that he needs to be to be popular and then of course that's when he starts to be actually successful so there's there's a nice little message to this as as you were saying about being yourself i believe they literally say those words yeah in in a title card that uh, one needs to be themselves although i don't really know who himself is from the moment we meet him he's just he's just being a little guy obsessed with going to college so i'd be curious to know what what his true colors are but uh it's it's a nice message you know the other thing interesting thing about that too that i that struck me um rewatching it for this uh and especially because i was listening to the commentary um the criterion disc has commentary by a couple people one of whom is leonard malton and uh, just to be clear, I could listen to Leonard Malton talk happily about movies for hours, but um, he just loves them. But well, uh, he's got a podcast just for that. I still love it. Yeah, um, he chose the right career then. Yeah, um, he. But the one thing I'll say that he pointed out was interesting is is Lloyd actually cut most of that scene. He cut when he was re-releasing it. He would cut the entire dance sequence, like the whole bit of dance, anything to do with the flasks, because he thought kids today don't know what prohibition was. So they mm. won't find this funny because the gag to him was Harold needs to find alcohol. And since it's prohibition, nobody should have any, but everyone has some, but right. that it still lands in college. Comedy. Wait, you're still you know. not. Yeah. You're still not allowed to have booze at a freshman dance. Yeah. But the, you know, the gag at the time, it still lands. But the thing that he also cut because he thought it was, it was too much is the moment after Lloyd or, or after Harold admits to Jobina like after he he rescues her and he feels vulnerable and he starts crying he collapses into her lap and starts crying and Lloyd cut that because he goes oh that's too over the top I was so affected by that if just because it's not another moment that isn't an over the top caricature you know it isn't um, you know uh, there's always a tinge of sadness to Keaton. Uh, the little tramp can have sadness, but there's just something about that moment where it could have been, it would have been very easy to have Harold have a stiff upper lip or to get mad or whatever. But mm-hmm. that moment where he just starts crying, I, it, it reminded yeah. me of one of my favorite moments in any movie. I'm going to get the quote wrong, but at the end of Royal Tenenbaums, the amount of release you feel when Ben Stiller says, I, I'm having a tough year, Dad. That hits me every time because it's just like he finally yeah. broke down in the way that we all want to uh, sometimes. Yeah. And seeing Harold get to do that in this movie, I think, is is a very touching yeah. thing that you, you don't see a lot. Yeah, and he was, you know, forced to confront his hero. His hero's exposed as a as a as a fraud and a bad guy. All of the, you know, he's becomes completely disillusioned with everything that he's been striving so hard to achieve. It's maybe that's it's that's that's a, that's a bit much because then he does just go into the game. But yeah, no, there's a lot wrapped up in that moment, and uh, and he you do see more of an of a character arc here 
than you get in the Keatons that I've seen and the Chaplins that I've that I've seen. Uh, where this character does he he learns a lesson and he changes and he grows you know you don't the you know as much as i love city lights is you know character you know, Ch- chaplin is is very likable from the beginning and you just kind of you want him to see him finally succeed because he is this archetype of this downtrodden person and he's got an inherent sweetness to him and an inherent pathos and you just are attracted to that uh but as we've been saying this whole time it is interesting to watch lloyd in as much as it's there, it's not some, you know, in- incredible transformative character arc, but it, it, it's an arc that exists and it's and it's nice to watch and it gives the, the, the film um, a nice forward motion and a nice structure. Uh, and, and as you said earlier, builds to the catharsis of the football game and really gets the audience involved. And I'm sure that that football game at the end was thrilling for a general audience to watch. I mean, this predates football on television by two you know, three decades, four decades, eh, three and a half decades. And I bet, you know, most people in general audiences out in small towns or whatever around had never seen uh, a football stadium with 50,000 people in it. It was probably incredibly thrilling to go see on the big screen as, you know, one of the first sports movies, the first, you know, football movie. Here's a crazier thing. Most of them had never seen a forward pass, which I learned recently. Uh, that, okay, so that was my other question. The end of this game, the final score is 6-3. to three. <laughs> So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, the, I can't imagine this was a thrilling contest. <laughs> or, as I assumed, football back then passes. That ball was not did not look designed to uh, be thrown very much and i so i assumed it was more scrum rugby based more ground game based game back in the 20s what do you mean you you assume we've all seen leatherheads here so we all know that's right why you, we've all seen true. leatherheads um, i do need to brush up on on <laughs> leatherheads it's 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 been a minute um but i i found this out because i thought it was interesting because i i don't know really much about football at all I do. I, it's it's it makes no sense to me. Um, and no matter how much I try, uh, any anytime I watch a football game, it's like when the stock ticker comes up at the bottom of the screen, and I'm like, I should know what this means. Um, but I saw a lot of people suggesting that this movie invented the forward pass, which it did not. However, the forward pass was not legal in American football until 1906, which is only which is less than 20 years before this. And had not been popularized, really, until this film. So a lot of people seeing it misattributed this movie to actually inventing it, which it did not. That's that's incredible. I mean, that is not unlike my own uh, experience with, with football, which is I played football for uh, one year in sixth grade. And our our team went the entire season without completing a forward pass, uh, except where there was one game. Uh, I... I, I athletic enough to participate in sports but i was never athletic enough to be kind of good at any of them uh but we got to one game i was uh i believe i was i was lining up as the i want to say the tight end maybe and i was supposed to block for the quarterback and i blew my block the guy went right past me which is what happens in this movie the quarterback was about to get hit and he had to just get rid of the ball and i happened to be open because i had blown my assignment like Harold Lloyd does in this movie. Uh, and I caught the only forward pass completed the entire season uh, when I played football in sixth grade. So I felt at the end of this movie, I felt very akin 
to uh, Harold Lamb with his with his great play there at the at the end of the game. Now, here's an interesting another interesting thing I dug up. I was wondering what was the state of football in 1925, and apparently this was a very controversial year for football. Did anybody come across this? Uh, yeah, well, yes, I, I, I saw very, very briefly. You will, you will have more information, I am sure. But it was something that the college year ended with, with no clear champion. Oh, you found a different thing than I did. That's very oh, interesting. Oh, okay. So I don't, I don't know if you have any more on that. That sounds interesting too. I didn't know about that. Uh, I don't have anything okay. more on that. I just, it, there seemed to be some sort of a, it said, yeah, there was a controversy where the year ended, uh, and something happened in the series, of, in the course of bowl games that there was no, uh, you know, uh, decided upon national champion that year. But I did not do any, any further digging as it did not pertain directly to the contents of the film. <laughs> so what I have here is the 1925 National Football League Championship claimed by oh, the, the Chicago- NFL. Oh, the NFL, yeah. Uh, who has never done anything wrong since, um, no. but was claimed by the Chicago Cardinals, has been long subject of controversy. The controversy centers on the suspension of the Pottsville Maroons, Ooh. that was the team, uh, by NFL Commissioner Joseph Carr, who prevented them from taking the title. The Maroons were one of the dominant teams of the 1925 season, and after defeating the Chicago Cardinals 21-7 to on December 6th, came away with the best record in the league. However, Carr suspended and removed the team from the NFL after they played an unauthorized exhibition game in Philadelphia on the grounds that they had violated the territorial rights of who? That's right, the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, everyone's favorite team today. Chicago played and won two more games against weak NFL opponents, but were sanctioned because a Chicago player hired four Chicago high school football players to play for the Milwaukee Badgers under assumed names to ensure a Cardinals victory. Uh, so basically, yes, Pottsville supporters argued the suspension was illegitimate because the league did not then grant exclusive territory. Basically, the NFL fucked a team out of the championship for being too good. Wow. And, uh, in 1963, the NFL investigated and rejected Pottsville's case, claiming that they had not done anything wrong. And in 2003, refused to reopen the case. There was demands <laughs> as recently as 2003. And also the F- NFL said, no, we didn't do anything wrong. It's fine. Yeah, that sounds wow. up and above above board to me. <laughs> I, I I don't see anything wrong there. They investigated their own case and uh, they came away scot-free. Sounds like, that's how that's how things work. <laughs> wow. Uh, and it sounds like, yeah, so uh, in, oh, over, over on the college side in 1925. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it ended with no clear national champion, but according to Wikipedia, sports writer Billy Evans described the championship contest as a dead heat among Dartmouth, Tulane, Michigan, Washington, and Alabama, and the Rose Bowl, uh, you know, uh, the actual Rose Bowl held at the stadium depicted in the movie here, the Tate University uh, football stadium with a with, sort of football auditorium with a uh, college attached, uh, had a dramatic fourth quarter 61-yard pass. So there you go. Dr- dramatic passes in in uh, real life and uh, on film there at the Rose Bowl that year. So I have a couple more little ephemeral trivia, including a really weird thing to get into. Does anybody else have anything they want to specifically touch on from this film before we get into the phenomenon around it? Uh, no, I am. I'm surprised. Like I, I kind of regarded this film as a it's a it's a good time. It's a fun little movie. Uh, so I'm. I'm intrigued to hear that it became a phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a couple things about it. There's two lawsuits pertaining to this film. One is that in its day, well, actually in 1929, humorist 
H.C. Witwer sued Lloyd in April of 1929 for $2,300,000 over the freshman, claiming it was pirated from Whitmer's short story, The Emancipation of Rodney, first published in 1915. Now, in fact, Lloyd had talked to Whitmer about adapting The Emancipation of Rodney, ultimately didn't do anything with it. When he went to make the freshman, contacted Whitmer and went, hey, I just want to tell you I'm doing this other college thing. Do you think it's anything like yours? Is this a problem? Whitmer said, no, not a big deal. And then The Freshman became the second highest grossing film of its year. And so a couple years later, Whitmer sued. But the uh, lawsuit was eventually... Whitmer died. His widow continued the lawsuit. Uh, A judgment was filed against Lloyd on November 1930, but then was appealed to the Court of Appeals, overturning it and ruling uh, in favor of Lloyd. That is the first lawsuit pertaining to this film. Does anybody want to guess what the second lawsuit was? Want to guess what and the this second is lawsuit was? Not the craziest thing pertaining to this film. A further lawsuit was brought in 2000 by Lloyd's granddaughter, Suzanne Lloyd Hayes, against the Walt Disney Company, alleging that elements of the freshman were copied in the 1998 comedy The Waterboy. I was going to say, yeah, I did think about The Water Boy while I was watching this movie. <laughs> you know what? Now that you say it, I think she's got a case. <laughs> well, the U.S. District Court of Los Angeles eventually ruled against Hayes. Um, well, they can go screw. There's a couple other interesting things with this. This movie was a huge fucking hit, and Lloyd was a huge star already. But this movie was so big. 1925, we had a number of promotional things going on, including, you know, the pennant you see at the beginning of the movie, right? That says the freshman and Harold Lloyd and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They actually had and sold souvenir pennants to promote this movie. This movie had every possible way to promote it that we do a modern blockbuster. You might be thinking the only thing it didn't have is obviously because it's a silent film. It didn't have like a, a promotional tie in song. And you'd be wrong. Kyle, can you cue that up for me real quick? Oh, a surprise song. Well, okay, so while that song's getting queued up, I will say, when you talked about the promotional pennant for the film, I, I pulled up eBay to see if I could find <laughs> if I could find this item. And I and I, I maybe should have specified the year or or Harold Lloyd. I typed in the freshman pennant, and you know what film you know what film did uh have a promotional pennant uh flag? The nineteen ninety movie The Freshman. <laughs> The Matthew Broderick, Marlon Brando movie that... Oh, here we go. Listen to this, fellas. And this is public domain, so we can play it. Huh? Yeah, that... That bumps. Oh, just wait. Oh, yeah, that's right. Huh? Ooh. This was the kiss from a rose of its day. I was just going to say, this is where my kid's going to get conceived. Jesus. <laughs> this is the Suicide Squad uh, Skrillex Rick Ross collab of its day. You mean the, uh, well, who, who was it? Travis Scott at the end of Tenet. <laughs> That's right. But wait, oh, he's singing now. <laughs> so this song this song was called Freshy. Uh it was written to promote the movie and sheet music was given to any of the organists at the theater to play it. 
and this was a hit song. This silent film spawned a hit single. Name another one, really. Um, all right, Kyle, you can you can cut freshy now. I believe people have gotten their fill. Um, but yes, yeah, so throw this that on. Is that on Spotify? I probably YouTube is. for sure. I, yeah, that's what I sent Kyle a clip of the YouTube version. Um, so that is that is the the song created to promote the film. This was a huge, huge, huge hit. In fact, um, we normally wrap up talking about the Oscars, but since there were no Oscars this year, I'll make note. The Freshman was the second highest grossing film of 1925, earning $2.6 million, coming in only behind The Big Parade, the King Vidor war film, mm. uh, which had made $4.99 million. It beat out The Gold Rush, which came in at number three by just $100,000. And number four was The Phantom of the Opera, the Lon Chaney film. Look, teens have always been a uh, reliable audience. you got to make movies for the the 13 to 18-year-old crowd. It's just, to me, it's just wild that, like, number one, The Gold Rush comes in third, and that's now so revered. And also that in and amongst this crazy year of 1925 that also brings us Battleship Potemkin, uh, you get the Phantom of the Opera. Um, interestingly, Keaton had two films in 1925, Seven Chances and Go West. Neither cracked the top ten. The previous film that Lloyd had, Girl Shy, was also the number two film of 1924. So Lloyd N had 25 and 24, the number two film. In 1923, Lloyd's Safety Last was number three, behind only Covered Wagon and The Ten Commandments. And in 1922, Lloyd's Grandma's Boy was number four, uh, looking ahead, beyond the freshman, uh, neither Lloyd's film, For Heaven's Sake, nor Keaton's Battling Butler or The General cracked the top 10 in 1926. Keaton does not. Keaton and Lloyd don't crack the top 10 in 27 either. In 1928 is the first time that Chaplin beats Lloyd at the box office. Chaplin has a film that gets in the top 10, The Circus, at number 9. Lloyd does not. Uh, that was around the year of Speedy, and it's also worth noting that the circus Chaplin's film wins an honorary Oscar. Lloyd's Speedy uh, only gets nominated for one. Speedy is a sort of quasi sequel to the freshman because in this one he plays a character whose name is Speedy. Um, there's no reference to the freshman, but if the audience wants to infer that the Speedy from the freshman uh, went on to become a successful uh, person in New York in Speedy, they can infer that. Because, fellas, you couldn't possibly imagine a scenario where somebody made a direct sequel to this movie, right? I, I feel like, uh? I feel like this is a setup. No, no, Mike. I that that would be the the furthest thing from my mind. Thank you, thank you. Well, it turns out there was one, and it's insane. Harold Lloyd tried to transition into sound uh, after sound came along. He wasn't satisfied. I think he has the best voice for sound. He's actually very good, but the sound movies were not that great. And in 1937, he leaves. Uh, I think it's his last film was called Profess- Warning Professor or something like that. And he's done. He's out. He wants nothing to do with it. He focuses on his new obsessions like color photography, microscopy, 3D photography, and his biggest passion in life, shooting nude photographs at his Beverly Hills mansion. <laughs> Lloyd photographed Marilyn Monroe, Betty Page, Dixie Evans, uh, and you can find a book called Harold Lloyd's Hollywood Nudes in 3D that was published in 2004 for anyone looking for that. Uh, 
1953, I'll note this last one too, in 1953, Lloyd received an honorary Academy Award for being a master comedian and good citizen. The second part may have been a jab at Chaplin, who was in trouble with the House on American Activities Committee at the time. But in 1947, here's the crucial thing. Lloyd has been retired for 10 years. He doesn't want to make movies anymore. But Preston Sturgis, one of the geniuses of American comedy film, loves Lloyd, is obsessed with Lloyd, and reaches out to Lloyd, uh, Quentin Tarantino style, and says, I want to give you a career resurgence. And pitches Lloyd a movie called The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. The opening of The Sin of Harold Diddlebach is just the football game from The Freshman. Not reshot, just the footage of the football game. This movie is a direct sequel to The Freshman, inexplicably changing the character's last name from Lamb to Diddlebach. And the weirdest thing about this is that it shows the footage from 1925 of Lloyd on the football field uh, in the game, and then cuts to a sound scene in a locker room where Lloyd, now in his 50s, is still playing his character in college. And a fella shows up and goes, great game. I want to give you a job. And he shows up and he gets a job at this guy's factory. And then we fast forward to the 1940s. And now Lloyd is playing himself at 50 and um, ends up losing his job. And there's a lion involved. The movie sucks. The movie's (laughs) terrible. I wanted it to be good and it's not. But the weirdest fucking thing is just the fact that Preston Sturgis decided to make a direct sequel to The Freshman. And use footage from the freshman. That that is why I I can't believe uh, that didn't make the screen drafts legacy sequels list. You see, this is what you got to call me. Well, I think there might have been some confusion because it was released as the sin of Harold Diddlebach was a failure. Howard Hughes pulled it, re-edited the movie, then called it Mad Wednesday and released it again in the fifties. And Lloyd was so miserable making that movie, he just went, "I'm done." This was Harold Lloyd's version of Sean Connery in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. This broke him, and he just went, no more. So, The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. I, I, what, a, what a bizarre thing. What a ver- I texted Tom as I was watching it and just went, this is an absolute night. <laughs> and, and that's but when I go, public this domain, is what you get so you for doing it. homework. So, I, uh, yeah, we always wrap up talking about the Oscars. In this case, there's no Oscars to talk about. But since I did uh, early on evoke the four pillars... Uh, of comedy of that time, I do want to make a note for anyone keeping track. Buster Keaton has six films in the National Film Registry. Chaplin has five. I looked this up. Weirdly to me, because I love some of these movies, Harold Lloyd only has two movies in the registry, and Fatty Arbuckle only has one. Um, that, of course, can change over time, but uh, that is that is how it all shakes out in terms of how people's legacies wound up is that obviously Keaton's films have gotten so much attention now and reclaimed Chaplin's films have gotten so much attention, and Lloyd, mostly because he had a bizarre stranglehold on his copyrights for most of his movies, now uh, only two kind of remain in the public consciousness. So uh, That's fascinating. I did not know that about, about Harold Lloyd. And it's an it, <clears throat> interesting point about ownership and access and, of course, you know, people who I fully support people getting paid for their art and having ownership over the things they create, but it is interesting that uh, people can perhaps you can go too far the other d- direction and uh, uh, you know covetously keep your your creations away from the audience unless it's under your exact circumstance you know that's that's fascinating that he sort of doomed himself to obscurity uh, that that way I didn't know that 
Well, Clay, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you coming by for this and for checking out this film. Yeah, man, thank you. It, it was a thrill. It was. A- oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we're, we're so glad to have you here. And uh, before you go, uh, let's tell folks a little bit more about Screen Drafts because it's, uh, like I said, it's a big, uh, Tom and I are both big fans of, of, of the show. And uh, we often uh, bicker about uh, people's selections on it. I still hold a grudge because uh, we consider uh, Phil Iscove and Kenny Nybart uh, really good friends. And Phil and Kenny know my love for uh, the 1999 film Wild Wild West. And uh, it got left off their Razzies. Got left off? I don't even know if it got mentioned. It It did not. Just... Yeah, real, real lack of respect for for really, for Wild Wild West on that episode. Fucking fucking Hudson Hawk, Phil. You put Hudson Hawk at number five. Hudson really? Hawk. I mean, on, Kenny man. talked about Color of Night, like it belonged in the National Registry, like it was one of yeah. the, the great films. <laughs> you oh, know, that's I'm Kenny just for saying. You. Just saying, I may be the man with a signed VHS of Wild Wild West, signed by director Barry Sonnenfeld. So you know, it hurt a little bit. Is all I'm saying. I uh, don't. Well, screen drafts always hurts a little bit. But uh, tell folks about the show. Sure, I'll tell. So, uh, uh, Kyle, pay, pay attention. Play, pay close attention, please. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. I'm all ears. Uh, remember, remember yeah. this when you're older. Uh, yeah, Screen Drafts is a uh, a list making co- game and conversation. We bring on. Sometimes we go a little bit crazy and have more people and more titles, but generally we bring on. Two people, experts, enthusiasts, uh, to to what we call draft. And again, uh, Mike, it sounds like you're not a huge sports guy, so you probably don't realize that the way we use the word draft makes absolutely no sense. But what we do is we have two what we call guest GMs, as though they're general managers of a sports team, come on and and competitively collaborate, building a single definitive best of list uh, for that topic. One person gets a certain number of picks, the other gets a certain number of picks, and we build a list from seven to one of the best films in that topic. Yeah, it's great. If you, it sounds like, uh, according to Mike, several guests from this show have been on as uh, guest GMs. Lots of your favorite people from film, Twitter, and podcasting, like Drew McWeeny. And we just had uh, an episode ranking the best movies about NASA with Alan Sepinwall and Linda Holmes. Uh, Mark Harris has been on. Um, all kinds of luminaries, great people. Griffin Newman, uh, Joanna Robinson, anybody you'd want to hear talk about movies, they come on and it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a fun sort of intersection between gameplay and strategy and just general movie discussion and geekery. So uh, yeah, it's fun. It's a good time. I, I hear from a lot of people that even, even if they don't know the topic or they don't know the, the guests or whatever, you get just kind of inherently wrapped up in the, in the game of it too. So I feel like no matter why you listen to podcasts, there's a, Probably something for you in there. I want the record to. I want the record to know that I. Uh, I, I am downloading the uh, video game adaptations episode uh, from July Ooh. as we speak. I love a draft where uh, there's very few, if arguably no, classics uh, available <laughs> to to play. Uh, I that's that that is a, that's a good choice, Kyle. That's a that's a good episode. Tom like, Grabinski and Kevin Costello. Yeah, great guess. It's like playing Russian roulette where every slot is filled with a bullet. Um, yeah rearranging yes, deck chairs on the titanic yeah uh i mentioned before i had i had the flu and strep last week so i was out on my ass and i had just listened to the shakespeare part two draft and i figured out oh this is the perfect time to finally watch kenneth Branagh's hamlet so uh you guys got me into a shakespeare mood so uh Ooh. thank you for that 
I just finished the Tony Scott episode. Thank God Man on Fire ended up at number one. Otherwise, there would have been <laughs> trouble. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great show. It is one of the best ways to purposely frustrate yourself, especially when Billy Ray is on, that absolute madman. Um, yeah, <laughs> guys, listen to the show. It's amazing. And we're very glad that Clay uh, came on because we love the show. And uh, thank you, man. This was awesome. Yeah, and if you ever want to do a, a draft on uh, the films of Harold Lloyd because you don't want anyone to listen to the episode at all, you know, you know, if you want your lowest rated episode ever, uh, you know, I can, I can, you know, I'm, I'm happy to happy to talk glasses, man. Um, I, I, uh, that is that is noted. Nobody else has expressed interest in a Lloyd draft. So when when the time comes, you're uh, yeah, you're the top guy. <laughs> If you, yeah, that's, I, I'm only good for the drafts that no one wants. Like no one, not, not just people don't want to do, but people don't want to listen to either. If you're like, I, shit, I guess we should do one on the career of forgotten comedian, Arthur Lake, baby, I'm your man. You know, well, and that's the thing. Roll. A lot of people listen to the show to get re recommendations uh, too. So, you know, there are some episodes we've done where I've just kind of assumed these were, you know, just, uh, just, just for us, just cause we want to do it. Nobody would have that much interest and they end up. You know, people people really enjoy them. So you you never know. That's true. I'll say this to, 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 to the the live action Disney draft that you did, uh, that you did with um. Oh Alan yeah, the Disney guess. with uh yeah with uh, Drew and Alan yeah or yeah, Drew and Brian rather I, yeah. It's the kind of topic that like it's the kind of specificity of movie that like most podcasts aren't really going to get into, and it was so great to, to to hear that conversation. And that's the other fun thing about screen drafts is the categories that you pick can be the kind of thing where you don't even consider, oh, I didn't even think that there were that many movies that fit this particular category. And that's probably yeah. what makes it fun, too. Yeah, we do some stuff like we'll do a famous director or a famous actor or, you know, whatever. But, yeah, I, I really like to find those odd sub-sub-genres that, as you said, you don't really think about until it's in front of you and you go, oh, my God, there are just a, a ton of that kind of movie. I mean, I, we, we did that episode. I reverse-engineered that because I wanted – to get Swiss Family Robinson on an episode, uh, that especially because they they took the treehouse out of your coast. Oh it's my a, god! A, don't don't yeah don't get me started on that. Oh <laughs> I've been upset Another. about that for twenty years. <laughs> Another Disney person. Oh god! <laughs> I was um, at Disneyland last weekend. <laughs> were you really? Yeah, oh, I'm sure. So jealous. My my partner and I are gonna try and get out there uh, soon because the first time the only time I went she and I had just started dating so we didn't I was going out with my family this time I really want to get her out there so hopefully you know hopefully maybe I'll you know yeah maybe I'll maybe I'll uh, I'll spot you there maybe we'll both be there at the same time riding the Davy Crockett riverboat canoes you know who knows who knows you know um, people I look I uh, I did the canoes a couple months ago the canoes are fun especially if it's I like a it. if it's a crisp morning it gets the blood pumping. Ugh. I love those canoes so much. Uh, anyway, Clay, thank you so much. And do you have any social media you want to plug? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah, on Twitter and uh, Letterbox, etc. I'm just at Clay Keller. I was able to get uh, get the get the first one of those. And the show is at Screen Drafts on uh, everything as well. Uh, Clay Keller, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry.
All right, so uh, this one's going to be pretty quick for me just because uh, my reasoning is simple. Uh, this is a comedy. It's a college comedy. Harold Lloyd's an icon. I want to get these icons to be filled, uh, to, to get more placement in the film registry because they are my boys. They are the boys. And everyone knows that Saturday is for the boys. We're not recording on Saturday, but we are all for the boys. Uh, I'm going with Here Come the Coeds by Abbott and Costello because, well, I want the boys in the registry. And I'm just going to, every chance I get, connect a movie to Abbott and Costello. I'm going to do it. And hopefully one day we get more than Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein in the registry because, goddamn, this movie's funny. The boys always make me laugh. They should make you laugh. If they don't make you laugh, I'm going to call Senator McCarthy. Wait, is Buck Privates not in the registry? I don't think so. I think it's, it's only not. Abbott and that's Costello insane. meet the. Yeah, it's only Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, oh, so that's I, why I'm saying uh, every Abbott and Costello movie I can find a connection to, I'm going to make that connection. So next war movie we get, I'm going I'm <laughs> to go with Buck Privates. I should have done it with All Quiet on the Western Front. It's just the whole season is just hilarious. Abbott and Costello movies. <laughs> I you know it's not too late. I Jack and the sure. Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> Tom, I thought for sure. I, I thought for sure. I'm like, this is a movie about football. Tom's probably picking like any given Sunday or some football movie. And nope, you just veered way out of left field, and I love it. I told you, no chance you knew what I was going to pick because I didn't ten minutes before we sat down. <laughs> My pick is equally out of left field in a way, but it's based on you know I kind of love. I'm fascinated by, as we learned on this episode, I'm fascinated by all of these old trends and these collegiate, uh, the collegiate craze and all of that. And also comedies that reference things that are, are no longer relevant, right? Um, jokes that don't land because we don't get the reference. Uh, that leaves me to a short that was maybe a hit in its day. Um, I'm not actually sure how popular it was in its day, but it was produced and then fell into the public domain because um, Warner Brothers just didn't care because they're like, no one knows what this is making fun of anymore. Who cares? But because it fell into the public domain in the last like five or six years achieved like meme status online, it was rediscovered. And uh, now uh, a lot of people might know what it is. Um, this is a short called The Dover Boys at Pimento University or The Rivals of Roquefort Hall. 1942 Mary Melody short directed by Chuck Jones. Um, the cartoon is a parody of The Rover Boys, the juvenile fiction series that I mentioned in our episode. Um, it's a very funny, very absurd short. If you don't know The Rover Boys, it's just weird, right? It's just the kind of humor that we like now that is very, like, you know, super bizarre and random stuff. But if you do know the Rover Boys, um, like the the Rover Boys were named. I'll see if I can pull up their names. Um, the Rover Boys were who? Uh, Tom, Sam, and Dick. Uh, and this is, of course, they call them Tom, Dick, and Larry. Uh, they are in love with uh, a girl named Doris Stanhope. In this, they call her Doris Standpipe. Uh, you know, it's Dan Backslides villain. This short is amazing to check out because it's it's so funny. Um, the the gags are great. Mel Blank provides the voice of Dan Backslide, and he is so over the top. Uh, the short obviously fell out of interest with people because it's lampooning uh, the turn of the century, which people don't necessarily get. But it's also worth noting because. It is the first or one of the first uses of limited animation 
Uh, this is another thing that makes it crucial. It's uh, Michael Barrier, the animation historian, said uh, Dover Boys might be the first modern cartoon, um, which is a cartoon that later UPA and other studios would do the style of animation. Style of animation. Uh, limited animation is basically something where up until this time, studios were animating in the Disney tradition, which is your hand drawing every frame. Every frame is an exact drawing. But in this case, if you uh, the characters move very quickly, the same way that like Tom and Jerry moves quicker, the Roadrunner moves quick, other ones that we know, because the frames in between the movements are just smudges. So if you actually stop and freeze frame this, you know the characters' faces are warped and look weird, the way people like to post weird, warped stills of animation. Um, so this is a hugely innovative film. This is an important film in the evolution of animation. Uh, a, you know so. It's important on a technical level, but it's also just a great, funny short that also plays into and lampoons the same uh, subgenre that the freshman lampoons. So uh, if you haven't seen Dover Boys, check it out. I love the Dover Boys. Dover Boys at Pimento University or the rivals of Roquefort Hall uh, should be in the National Film Registry. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Clay Keller for joining us. Next week, our Houston historian returns to the show. David Bluff Band is back to discuss 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Register.